We turn your attention to the Word of God, to the book of Acts chapter 2. Today is Pentecost in the church calendar. Today is the day we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit visibly, manifestly to His people. And we have the account of that in Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all those who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belong to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocked, said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Pentecost means five tens or 50. We're used to that word pent, even in our language, the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Bible. The pentatonic scale in music is a five tone scale. Pentagon is five-sided um, in geometry. And the word Pentecost means simply 50. And its significance is that it was the 50th day after the Feast of First Fruits. Now, I know you remember this because it comes from Leviticus 23 and you're very familiar with the book of Leviticus. Why do you laugh? You really ought to know that book inside and out because that book is basically the life of Christ in pictorial form. But here's kind of the way the flow of the feast went in that particular section. There was the feast of, of um, first fruits and it was a celebration that involved the waving of a sheaf of the harvest that had been harvested, the very first fruits of the field, waving it before the Lord in a celebration. It was a symbol of God's blessing. It was a symbol of God pouring out upon them. It was obvious that they had had the former and the latter rain upon the crops. 
and the crop had made and it was good and the Lord had blessed and a sign of God's favor was in the waving before him, a thank you, a thank offering of the sheave of grain before the Lord. And then following that, there were seven weeks of celebration, seven weeks of enjoyment, seven weeks times seven days in a week is 49 days. And on the 50th day, the day after the festival of weeks was the day of Pentecost. Jesus' resurrection had occurred on the feast of first fruits. This was a symbol of the resurrection of Christ. And now the seven weeks had passed and on the 50th day, the people were still in the festive mood and they were gathered in Jerusalem. Let me set the stage for you. Jerusalem, the pilgrim throng had been there for more than seven weeks because they had had the Passover and eight consecutive Sabbaths. So if there ever was a period of heightened religiosity in the minds of God's people, it was this particular occasion. They had been having this long extended time of celebration. And most of these celebrations centered around the temple. Of course, the Passover meal was something that was eaten privately in homes, but all the rest of the sacrificial system was carried out at the temple. And they were no doubt on Solomon's porch, the great portico there that had been built that literally contained enough room for several thousand people to be there. And as devout Jews, all of the disciples of Jesus were there. Now, where had they been? Well, in that 50 days intervening for 40 days, they had been with the Lord. He had appeared among them and shown himself to be alive by many infallible proofs. They had walked with him. They had been with him on the seashore, in the mountain, in the upper room. There had been countless hours when Jesus had been with his 11 disciples now that Judas was gone and the 120 that had gathered in the upper room where they went week by week to have their time of prayer and fellowship. The Lord had been with them for 40 of those 50 days. And then on the mountain, he had ascended back into heaven. And he had given them on that occasion the notification that all power, all authority, it's exousia, it means principality, authority, the, the rights had been given to him in heaven and in earth. This is the language of the sovereign. This is the language of the king. This is the language of the one that is high and lifted up. This is the resurrected Christ assuming his rightful place as God's anointed and he is now to ascend to his heavenly throne. He is to be enthroned following his coronation at his resurrection. This is very, very incredible technical, but yet thrilling prospects. 
now the Christ who had come to the humility of the earth and had become a human being and had suffered and died and was buried in the heart of the earth had now burst forth in resurrection. And the disciples had been celebrating that resurrection, every one of those Sabbaths. And then on the first day of the week, they had taken the special day now so that they had what we call now a weekend, a Saturday Sabbath and a Sunday resurrection day. We come to celebrate Easter once a year. They celebrated it once a week. It was a great time for the disciples. So they were there enjoying this Passover and festival of uh, first fruits and then now Pentecost. But they were not alone. In that crowd at the temple were at least four audiences. There were, first of all, the men of Israel. This was an address of respect that Peter would give to them. And these are the men who had exercised the leadership and the authority in Israel. These were the elders in Israel. These were comprised of the Sanhedrin as an assembly and the, the priest and the priestly family and the chief priest especially as those who had the spiritual livelihood of Israel in their hands. There were men and women from all over the world. In fact, there's same listing here of the, some of the countries like Bithynia and Pontus and Asia are the same countries that are listed in 1 Peter 1 when he writes that letter. But they were here to hear Peter on this day of Pentecost, a pilgrim throng of thousands. A third audience were the third audience was the 11 with Peter. They would all be preachers. Peter would be the first and the most prominent one in the one whose sermon is recorded here in Acts. And there were with them the believers, those who had been 40 days with Jesus, but had received the order from Christ to tarry in Jerusalem. Wait. And I don't think they knew how long they were going to have to wait. But as it turned out, they waited 10 days. 10 days after Jesus ascended for this great day of Pentecost, they had waited. And most of their time was spent apparently in the upper room there in Jerusalem. The thing to remember about this audience is that with the exception of the 11 and the 120, the majority, the vast majority of the rest of the audience had been in town seven weeks and a few days earlier. And this was the same crowd that had cried, crucify him, crucify him. Many of these people had been in town a week before that and had seen Jesus ride in humbly, mounted upon the donkey. And they had said, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And he had been honored as the 
son of David. But most particularly, these men of Israel were the ones that had condemned, prosecuted for the first place before Pilate and Herod, and then finally condemned and had been responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. This is, you'd say, a tough crowd. Highly religious. And yet venial to the core. Keeping all the feast and the festivities and the sacrifices and the ceremony. But their hearts were far from God. And God sends his spirit, the promised Holy Spirit upon them. And we just read the story of the manifestation of what happened. And it was Peter that stood up to explain the phenomenon because as in every large crowd, there were kind of two classes of inquirers. One, we read about them here, one group said, what does this mean? And the others mocked and said, well, they're drunk. This is a drunken display. We've had so many feasts and so much wine flowing over these last few weeks that these people have finally lost it. They're under the influence. And Peter rose to simply at first, I think, explain the phenomenon. And he explained it this way. This is that. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he quotes the prophet Joel in chapter 2, a long quotation that begins there where our text had ended. He says, in the last days, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, even on male servants and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. And before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. Here's the perspective, the prophetic perspective. Joel had promised it. And now this generation had seen it. These now are the last days, the days of fulfillment, the days when the Spirit of God comes and, and pours out the Spirit upon the whole of humanity without regard to gender, class, ethnicity, language group. All sons and daughters received this empowerment from on high. Peter did not preach about the Holy Spirit. He identified him. He explained the phenomenon in terms of what the Spirit does. It came as a sound as of a mighty rushing wind. And the word wind and spirit and breath are the same word in the ancient language. The Spirit had come, but Peter didn't preach the Spirit. 
He didn't talk about the Spirit. He didn't urge them to be filled with the Spirit. He didn't exhort them to understand and pay attention to the Spirit. What he did was he preached Jesus. And this is exactly what Jesus said what happened. Jesus said, when the Spirit comes, he will not testify of himself, but he will speak of me. And then that's the rest of the story that I want to just kind of outline for you quickly, starting there in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with mighty works, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. These are the eyewitnesses. This throng, many of them, especially the men of Israel, the men that had been ruling in Jerusalem and in Judea throughout the ministry of Christ, they knew all about Christ. In fact, they'd become obsessed with him at times. They knew his wonder working, his love, his counsel, his ministry. They knew his healing, his teaching, his preaching, his casting out demons, his receiving of sinners. This they all knew. This is the gospel story. In fact, this is what the theologians call the kerygma. It's the story, the saga of Christ, the objective facts about his life and ministry on earth. There was no need for Peter to try to prove the existence of the historical Jesus because he was right there among them all this time. They had seen him. They knew him completely in his humanity. He says, this Jesus, again, this term Jesus, this Jesus is used three times in this text. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That's God's side of it. Jesus was a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. God's atoning work has been in God's mind since before the fall. He knew what would happen. He knew what he needed to do. God saw the malady and he prescribed and effected the remedy. And that was to send Christ. That was God's side of it was an act of love. But listen, he says, you... And I love the description says that Peter, who had warmed his hands at the fire of these very same men and denied the Lord three times, now has taken that same hand and pointed a finger right at the Sanhedrin. This was a man who had been given boldness. By the way, that's one of the things that the Spirit does is he gives boldness. And now he begins to put it in plain, simple terms. That's another thing the Spirit does. He gives utterance. He enables you to speak and say things precisely. So with boldness and utterance, Peter said, you crucified and killed you lawless men, you men without law, you men that think you know Leviticus and Deuteronomy, but you are lawless. You have crucified Jesus. Here's the gospel story, the crucifixion and the resurrection, because in the very next breath, Peter says, God raised him up. 
having loosed the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 that it was the mighty Spirit of God that raised up Christ from the dead. And here's the Spirit coming again to give utterance and to give witness and to testify concerning Christ and the gospel, his death and his resurrection. And, and Peter then quotes the 16th Psalm. Now the 16th Psalm is a wonderful Psalm. It talks about how David had made the Lord his portion, how the Lord had been um, adopted by David, as it were, to be his very own. He, like his father Abraham, had seen finally the Lord as his exceeding and great reward. But now he speaks in the latter part of that chapter, I saw the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. My heart was glad, my tongue re rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me, you'll make me full of gladness with your presence. That's the classic passage in the Old Testament of the resurrection of Jesus Christ restored to the presence of God. I think that's one of the reasons Peter had boldness is he had seen the risen Lord and he had heard Jesus said, because I live, you shall live also. He had come to know Jesus as the resurrection and the life. And he had adopted in his soul that proverb that says, I will not fear for what can man do to me? Later on, he'll stand before this same group when he gets in trouble for preaching down the road and he'll say, we ought to obey God rather than man. All the fear and trembling that was in Peter that day he was cursing and denying the Lord in the wee hours of the morning. All of that spirit now had been lifted. Perfect love cast out fear. And the love of Christ that had been shed abroad in his heart by the Holy Spirit with Christ risen from the dead and ascended to glory had given Peter everything he needed to declare boldly the gospel truth before these people. And he quotes the Old Testament. But then in verse 29, as he continues, he talks about the enthronement of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. But listen to the enthronement. And I want to read this passage and then sort of give you a, a little bit of a, of a survey of it. But, but bear in mind that this is not a direct quotation from any place in the Old Testament, but it is an allusion. It is a reference to 2 Samuel 7, 14 and following, where Nathan the prophet comes to David and promises David something. And we'll see what it is. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us this day. In other words, the resurrection didn't apply primarily and foremost to David because he's still in the tomb. His tomb is with us this day. Being therefore prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants upon his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This is a reference to that time when Nathan the prophet came to King David. And David had in his heart, if you study the life of David, David had in his heart to build God a house. 
For years, for generations, God's people had carried the tabernacle all through the wilderness and in various locations in the land of Canaan, all through the days of Joshua and Judges. God dwelt in a tent in the tabernacle, which had become severed, torn, raggedy, disassembled. In fact, at some point, about all they could gather from the original furnishing was the ark, just what was left of the ark of the covenant. That's about all that they had. It had been at Shiloh and Shechem and all Bethel and all kinds of places. But now David had brought that ark back and he wanted to build God a house. He had gone to the lengths to do this. He had gathered all the material. He had hired the contractor, Hiram of Tyre. He had purchased the, the site there on Mount Moriah, the place where Abraham had offered Isaac the threshing floor. He had purchased, he had done everything except made the construction. And the Lord comes to David by, by Nathan the prophet and says, all your life you've wanted to build me a house. Well, you're not going to get to do it. <laughs> House building, temple building is going to belong to your son. I'm going to give it to your son. But here's what I'm going to promise you, David. I'm going to give you a house, a dynasty, the house of David. There will never fail to sit upon the throne one of your descendants. And that was true in Judah historically. But now what we're looking at is not Solomon at whose porch we now gather. But now we're looking at David's greater son, the greater than Solomon that is here. And that is Christ. And that's exactly who he references in verse 32. And this is the key verse of the whole sermon. This Jesus, God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, in which Christ had been raised from the dead, granted the royal title, crowned, coronated, and enthroned at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. What's going on today? Pentecost. What's going on here on Solomon's porch is the fulfillment of hundreds of years of God's promise. One of which, one of the major promises was God said, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Ezekiel the prophet lived, lived and preached and ministered under one great power. And that was the power of the promise of the Holy Spirit. He even ends his book by showing a picture of the temple and a fountain in the temple that flows forth and gets deeper and deeper and eventually covers the whole country. A great river. There's a river that makes glad the city of God. And that river is the pouring of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that himself. He said there'd be a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And this is the coming of the Spirit of God, all made possible by the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, and the enthronement of this Jesus. One more thing and then I'm through. 
in proof of that, he said, the Lord said to my Lord, he quotes Psalm 110, which by the way is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus had already proposed to this very group of men, these men of Israel, this little question one day when they were really badgering him and persecuting him and trying to drive him out and trying to show the people that Jesus didn't know what he was talking about, that he was not an authentic rabbi, that he wasn't a genuine priest, that Jesus didn't have any credentials at all and all of this, that their heaviest hand they brought against him. And Jesus one day just looked at the, at the, the uh, authorities and said, let me ask you a question. David said, my Lord said, the Lord said to my Lord, How do you explain that? (laughs) The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. They couldn't explain it. It just didn't really make grammatical sense and it wasn't in any sense in which it could be true from the lips of David. But this is a coronation, a crowning hymn and it can only apply to one person and that's Jesus. How? Could Jesus be David's Lord and also David's son? That was the question Jesus put to him. How can he be David's Lord and also David's son? He could only be that way by the incarnation, by being both God and man. As God in his deity, Christ was the Lord. But in his humanity, he was a descendant, a physical descendant of David. He was truly the son of David. Jesus was both David's Lord and David's son in his humanity. Then the last sentence there, he says, he'd been given these titles, Lord, which means sovereign, and Christ, which means Savior. This Jesus whom you crucified. At this point in the sermon, the Bible tells us that the crowd, by and large, reacted. And their reaction was quite sobering. The Spirit of the Lord had opened the ears and the eyes of about 3,000 of them. Don't know how many there were in total, but 3,000 of them had been ministered to by the Spirit of God. He had opened their eyes to see the truth. He had opened their ears to hear the gospel. He had quickened their hearts to be sensitive And the first thing they felt with that sensitive new heart was the infliction of their sin. And they, what can we do? What can we do? And Peter said, repent, turn around, reverse course, change. Repent of what? Repent of your Christlessness. Repent of living your life and having your religion and doing it your way and keeping all the feasts and keeping all the festivals and quoting all the scripture and going to church every Sunday. Repent of all of that 
and embrace Christ. It's interesting that the prophet Joel had said, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone, with no exception, who calls upon the name of the Lord, the name that is lifted up, King, Messiah, Lord, Christ. And Peter says in his Conclusion, for the promise is for you and for your children and all who far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. There is the free offer of the gospel. And there is the true doctrine of election and God's calling and God's choosing. I wanted to stop here. I've got a big slash in my Bible with my orange marker that says that's the end of the sermon, but that's not the end of the narrative. Let me read one more verse. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. By the way, that's, that's the two halves of preaching, bearing witness and exhorting, telling you the truth, the narrative truth, bearing witness to Christ and then telling you what you need to do. And that's, and that's what Peter did. But listen, listen to, the, to the interesting thing he said. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. That's the gospel call to every generation. We live in a perverse generation, a crooked generation led by crooked people with a bunch of crooked people following them. And perverse. Do I need to spell out the perversity of our generation? Save yourselves. Call upon the name of the Lord for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Come, confess, call. 